So we are on a sermon series of the divine signs of Christ, the seven signs of Christ and his divinity. God has really clearly indicated who Jesus is, and he was doing it so that the Jewish people would understand that their Messiah had come. Uh, And today we're going to talk about the healing of the nobleman's son. Uh, And this is the third sign of the divinity of Christ. And when we do this, I would like you to imagine that you're back 2,100 years, that you're there as Jesus is going to do this miracle and as he indicates his message, because it is as relevant then as it is today. Uh, And so it's important for us to understand this. If you have your Bibles or you can look on the screen, we're going to read John 4, verse 46 to 53. Once more he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on his way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his entire household believed. And so what an incredible passage here. Uh, as Jesus will heal this man's son from a distance without even going to visit him. Uh, And so he did not visit him personally. He will heal him from a distance. And I would say to you, who else in the Bible healed from a distance or had power with his words from a distance? Only God the Father. In the creation account in Genesis, when his words would say something and it would be done. And even as he brought the, the Israelites Uh, out of Egypt. The word of God was enough to get it done. You see the son now displaying the same characteristics. Uh, And so Jesus now is going to warn the Jewish people about idolatry. And that's what this message is about, the idolatry, meaning what can I get from you, Jesus? What are you going to give me? All right. What are you going to put in this left hand in order for me to accept you? Uh, And it's the same for us today. And this is the warning to us. Jesus is not your concierge. You understand? God is not your concierge. We worship him. We worship him. We believe in him. And then the blessings flow afterwards. But first, it's all about belief. And so Jesus here is trying to address the Jewish appeal towards idols. The Jewish people had a proclivity towards this. You remember when they left Egypt, uh, within a short period of time, they're dancing around the golden calf. Why? Because Moses had the temerity to wait 40 days up on the mountain for the Ten Commandments. 
But that's how they were. They were inculcated for 400 years with idolatry and pagan worship. And so God is trying to break them of this tendency, even now, uh, as, the, as Jesus has, lives his life in ministry, he's trying to break that. Uh, and so today, it's the same for us. Are we worshiping the Lord because we think we're going to have certain needs met? Or are we worshiping Jesus because we know he is, in fact, the Son of God? Uh, and so what happens is, when you worship Christ uh, for what you're going to get out of it, effectively you are creating an imaginary Christ. That's not the real Christ. Uh, and that pr- places you in great peril uh, when you live like that. As one theologian said, which I love this statement, if you are satisfied with an imaginary Christ, then you must be satisfied with an imaginary salvation. How's that? That's the essence of what this is about. That's the essence of what this message is about and what God is saying to you today. Christ came to save you from sin. If you got nothing else from Jesus, from that, then you have been paid well in advance. All right? He has saved you from death. And so Jesus' third sign here the healing of the nobleman's son, not only reveals Jesus' glory as the Messiah and the Son of God, uh, but it also forces us to think about whether we have created an imaginary Christ. Uh, It it, it challenges, you see, our propensity uh, to desire a utilitarian God who exists solely to, to address our felt needs. And this is something that we all do. Jesus, I need this. Jesus, I need this. Help me with my help. health. Help me with my finances. Help me with my relationships. And you see, there's nothing wrong with praying for that, but you don't put that first. We don't worship him because of what he gives us. We worship him because he's God. We worship him because he died for us. And all these other correlative benefits are flowing as a result. But the primary issue is the worship of God himself. And so Jesus is calling us here to reject all the false images uh, of him uh, and to, to stop searching for signs, really, and embrace the true Jesus. Embrace the true Jesus. Instead of asking him, For a sign for who he is, Jesus calls him to advance him as your Lord and Savior. And so prior to healing the nobleman's son, Jesus was in Samaria where he visited the Samaritan woman. You know that that story. And so there it was. He received an incredible uh, acceptance of his ministry. Uh, And you see it as the prelude to this third sign. Uh, and, and there are several aspects that draw our attention to his trip to Samaria. The first aspect uh, is that he received a favorable response. Can you imagine? From the Samaritans. They weren't real Jews, according to Judaism. And yet these people, without a sign, without a miracle, accepted him as their Lord and Savior as the entire village came to repentance and acceptance of Christ. Uh, And so these non-Jewish believers and outcasts now came to accept Jesus as the Jewish Messiah. This all really was the prelude to the trip back 
uh, to Galilee. The second aspect of that trip to Samaria was that the Samaritans believed without any sign whatsoever. They didn't need a miracle. They didn't need a sign. They believed and had faith in the words of Christ alone. And that's what God demands, that we believe basically in, in the spoken word that he is the God of the universe, that he is the Son of God. This faith that was exhibited by the Samaritans was totally unexpected and, and was received in a tremendous response. But when Jesus now returns home to Galilee, he receives an entirely different response. Uh, and John alerts us to this in the opening two verses of the account of Jesus' third sign. If you look at John 4, verse 43, after the two days he left for Galilee, meaning after the two days in Samaria, he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad? But it is true. It is true. And so here he is. He'll always be the carpenter's son. He came out of Nazareth. Nothing good ever came out of Nazareth instead of listening to the words of Christ. And so these words make it clear, very clear, that Jesus was destined to receive a very different response from his own people, from his own countrymen, than what he had received in Samaria. John 4, verse 45 says, When he arrived in Galilee... The Galileans welcomed him. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, for they also had been there. They knew that he had done miracles. They knew that he was a miracle worker. And so that's what they had heard about him. They really weren't interested in the fact that he was the son of God or that he had come to break the handcuffs of sin. This guy can do miracles. He's a magic man. We need to come and see him. They had seen it with their own eyes. And that's what attracted him, not the fact that he was the son of God. And so the focus of that statement in scripture is that Jesus was received only for what he could deliver, what he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. And I want to assure you that the Bible only gives you the surface of the miracles that Jesus did. Uh, John says at the end of the Gospel of John that if he wrote all the things that Jesus did, there's not enough room in the world for all the books. Just gives you an idea of all the things that you don't know about that Jesus had done. Uh, and so, yes, the people understood it. But unlike the Samaritans who had received Jesus without a sign, these Galileans wanted a sign. Give us a sign. Do a miracle. Entertain us. Solve our problems. What are you going to give us, Jesus, in this left hand before we come to accept you in the right? Uh, they were seeking Jesus so that he could do something for, for them. And that's not what it's about. We don't seek Jesus or worship Jesus or love Jesus because he can help us. We worship him and love him because he's the God of the universe. He is the son of God. He died on the cross to save you from your sin. And if he never did another thing for you, the stamp says paid in full. Amen, church? Paid 
in full. And we have to remember that. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't go and ask, that you don't go to the throne because you know he loves you. And it doesn't mean that he wouldn't show his love towards you or heal you or take you out of detrimental situations. But all of that flows because first, you had faith in who he is. Faith to believe the word of God. Now the sign uh, seeking of the Galileans is further indicated by the action of this Galilean nobleman. He was most likely a Jew in the employ of King Herod Antipas. He was a man of wealth, we know, and a man of power. And so when the nobleman heard that Jesus was in Cana, had gone back to Cana in Galilee, he went to find him. Now, I want you to understand, this is no mere round-the-block visit. It's about 27 miles. And so he went out 27 miles, but his purpose was not to worship the Son of God. Uh, Rather, he wanted Jesus to heal his son. Now, I know you're saying to yourself, well, come on, John. Come on, that's not a bad thing. No, it's not a bad thing. But when the heart of your belief is predicated on what God is going to do for you or what you want him to do for you, that's not real faith. And God wants real faith. Uh, Yes, we understand that the nobleman wanted Jesus to heal his son. Uh, But we have to understand that before we get anything or ask for anything from God, we have to fall before his throne and worship him. And Jesus responded with a rebuke. And I know when you read it, you may say, oh, Jesus, that's a little rough, isn't it? Well, it's not if, in fact, you understand the nature of faith and what it's about. And Jesus said there in John 4, verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now, Jesus wasn't just speaking to this nobleman. He was speaking to all the Jewish people. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. You have to have something in the left hand before you will give your heart to God. And God repudiates that. That's the nature of idolatry. That's raising something above the nature of God himself. Now, there's two ways of looking at this man's faith at this point. The first way is to be surprised, really, that he exercised any faith at all. Here was a man uh, of high authority uh, who was obviously exercised great power, uh, and he travels 25 miles or so to request a miracle from a carpenter. Um, And what we see here is that desperation will drive people to great lengths. He was desperate. All right? He didn't believe that Jesus was God or the Son of God or that he could save him or redeem him. But he knew, based on what he had heard coming out of Jerusalem, that he had the authority and power to do miracles. Uh, and so here it is. Incredible things often drive people, and they drove this man. This is one way of looking at what his faith was. But the other way of looking at it uh, is the way that Jesus looked at it and the way he looks at us today. Uh, And though what appears to be real faith is, in fact, quite weak, it's really nothing more than saying, what you can give me, God. What are you going to give me? Uh, I need this. I need you as a concierge. The man did believe that Jesus was able to heal his son, but he limited Jesus 
to indicating that he had to do the healing in order to come back to Capernaum. Certainly, you don't have the authority to just heal him here by saying a word. He thought for sure Jesus would have to come back the 25 miles and put his hand on him and touch him in order to heal him. And so Jesus would undertake a lesson to him and to the rest of the Jews to show him really who he was in the third sign of the divinity of God. And, and in this sign, indicating that the faith had to grow. And that's what Jesus is saying to us today. Now, why was Jesus so stern with the nobleman? Uh, he responded, really, the way he did, because the nobleman was engaged in the act of idolatry. And God repudiates idolatry. Raising anything above God himself is an idolatry. And you know the Jewish people were full of idolatry. And you want to know something? We're full of idolatry today. I don't want you to think that you have to have a little plastic God on your dashboard, you know, uh, or at home, and you're bowing to it, and that's idolatry. No, that's not idolatry today. Idolatry today is your family. Do you elevate your family above God? Is it about money? Do you elevate money about God? Or is it power or prestige? Or, for many of us here, is it health? Do we elevate health above our real worship of God? And so Jesus is really making a point here that all those things will come to you once you come to worship God without idolatry. You come to worship him in true faith. Uh, and so what you see here, even though this man's son was about to die, he didn't come to Jesus to receive salvation. He didn't come to acknowledge him as the God of the universe. He was not interested in receiving salvation, but only a solution to his problem. And you need to understand this even as you go out into the world and speak to people who are lost. He came to Jesus seeking a sign. And Jesus rebukes him for it. Now, Jesus' rebuke was not solely aimed at the nobleman. It was really named at all, aimed at all of the Jews. Uh, he uses essentially the plural you in that statement, except you people see signs and wonders. You people will not believe. He's speaking to all of the Jews. You people, not just this man. You people will not accept uh, the Son of God, unless you receive some miraculous sign. He was rebuking all of them, all of them, because like the noblemen, none of them were interested in him as the Son of God theologically, but only pragmatically. What are you going to give me in this left hand? What are you going to do for me? Uh, and so he rebuked them because they were focusing solely on the miracle, solely on the sign, not really at all on the greater spiritual realities that they represented. Understand something. The signs that Jesus did were pointed to bring you to salvation. They weren't being done to elevate Christ himself or elevate the magic of the sign or the miracle. They were done so that you would come before the throne of God and recognize that he was the son of God. That's what this is about. He's making an important point here uh, between his signs and true faith. Uh, and while his signs were given uh, to encourage faith, the faith that they were intended to produce was in the spiritual reality of who he represented. 
That's what this is about. The signs were meant to show you are God. You are the son of God. I bow before you and accept you as the son of God. And so the question I have for you today is this. Is your faith, is your faith really of the kind that accept God for who he is without any existing miracles? Do you accept God for who he is without additional props? Do you bow before the throne of God because he saved you and you are going to spend eternity with with Jesus and with God the Father along with your family that's preceded you? Or are you worshiping because you want him to be your concierge? Because God repudiates that kind of conduct. And that's what this sign is all, all about. And so Jesus performed signs so that people would believe in him as the Messiah, not as the miracle worker. He didn't want to be thought of as the miracle worker. He wanted to be thought of as the son of God, the Messiah himself. Uh, And that's what made what went on in Samaria so precious and beautiful. The Samaritans believed and had faith in the word of God without any sign. And so even though Jesus, you see, was disappointed by the nobleman's request for a sign. In mercy, Jesus healed the boy. In mercy, that's your God. He had mercy, even though the reason that he had come there was not the right reason. Jesus, in mercy, reached out to him. He did this by healing by distance and solely by the power of his spoken word. Here's another example of the divinity of God. Who can heal by distance? Who says a word and it's done? In Genesis, who said, let there be light and there was light. Let there be water. Let there be oceans. And it was done. Let man be created and it was done only by the power of the word of God. Jesus didn't have to go back 25 miles in order to do it. Uh, Instead, he simply said in John 4, verse 52, Go thy way, thy son will live. Oh, Father, how great you are. How powerful is your word. This is the son of God. This is the sign of the divinity of Christ. No one could do this. No one could say this other than God himself. And so the mindset, you see, and and by the way, when the nobleman returned, and learned that his son was healed at that exact moment that Jesus had spoken, he and his entire household believed in Jesus. The entire household became saved because they saw the power of the hand of God. And so even though God performed a miracle here, the result of that miracle was the right thing, was the fact that these people came to accept Christ. So much of what we're going to read as we go forward with these messages will be people that saw, saw the miraculous sign and yet didn't believe. One of the things that amazed me when Jesus brought Lazarus out of the grave after he had been there for four days uh, was that people went back to the high priest and effectively ratted Jesus out. You know what he did? Oh, there's an uprising that people are embracing him. Instead of focusing on the fact that he had this incredible power from God, and that's when they decided he has to die. He has to die. Isn't it better, as Caiaphas said, that one man die, one man die so that all of Israel can live. 
Oh, my gosh. The words of that man were so true that he had no idea what he was saying. Yes, one man will die so that the entire world will live. And so the, the, really the mindset that Jesus encountered upon his return to Galilee is still much t- today the same way. Uh, our generation seeks a sign before it is willing to believe. Uh, like the Galileans, we're looking for something or someone that fills our needs. We are the children of the age of what can I personally get out of this? Uh, and like the nobleman, the world demands uh, a sign before it is willing to believe in God. People want God to do something for them before they accept him, before they believe. They seek a sign from religion, something that promises something measurable and tangible benefits. That's why the prosperity message has resonance with some people. Oh, if you do this, he's going to give you this. If you give X, he's going to give you Y. I repudiate that. The Bible repudiates that. The words of Jesus in this miracle repudiate that. All of that is idolatry. You accept Christ because he is God. You accept Christ because he is the Son of God. And when you do and bow before his throne, all your needs within his perfect will will be met. But not because you asked for it, because this is the mercy of God himself. These are the tangible benefits that flow when you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And so this rebuke by Jesus was not primarily directed at the world at that time. Rather, it was focused upon his fellow Jews, because remember, Jesus came first for the Jews. It was targeted at the church of the first century world. He was saying to its leaders, except ye see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That's what he was saying. We must ask ourselves today, and this is a legitimate question for us, As a church, and I say a church worldwide, it applies to a church worldwide. Are we worshiping God for what we want out of him? A quick survey of evangelical Christianity makes it difficult not to conclude that that rebuke by Jesus is relevant to our church today. And when I say our church, I mean the church universal of Jesus Christ. Evangelicalism is obsessed with practical prosperity. They're obsessed with practical prosperity. People are seeking a God who works for them. They're seeking a God who is a concierge for them. And so effectively, many evangelicals have become consumers of religion, consumers of religion. They're not worshiping God, but they're consuming religion when they find churches that appeal to them. They shop around for a church, much like they shop for clothes or a car. They shop for what works for them. Oh, I like the music there. Oh, I don't like the music there. Oh, I like the people there. Oh, I don't like the people there. Oh, that building isn't that nice. It's not that big. There's not enough parking spots. There's not enough ministries going on. And the list goes on and on and on. I am a consumer. What am I going to get out of this instead of saying, God, where do you want me to worship? 
Where am I going to hear the unvarnished word of God? You understand? And the rest of the world has really abandoned this. And so here's the question that people ask. Does this church meet my felt needs? When the real question is, Lord, is this where I can go to worship you? Is this where I I can go to bow before your throne? Uh, And this is how the problem with how we conceive of God. For so many of us, we have really looked to God as how we can use him, rather than to a God that we have to obey. We have forgot the fact that it's all about submission and obedience. We have turned to God who will fulfill our needs rather than to a God whom we must surrender our rights. That's what this is all about, bowing before his throne. For many of us, we're like the nobleman. We're seeking a God we can personally use. And God repudiates that. That's not the nature of what he wants from us. And so Jesus is teaching us an important lesson here. Uh, And that is, one must believe first. Believe first, then you will see the results. Faith is about believing first. Jesus had said, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. The statement was a true true description of the state of Judaism at that time uh, with vast numbers of men and women. The world has a proverb that states, seeing is believing. Well, that's not the way it is with God. With God, it's believing is seeing. Amen, church? This is the nature of how God wants us to worship, how God is calling us to see him. And so the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And I will say that that was an exhibit of faith. He heard what Jesus said. He went back believing that Jesus had healed him. Now, in his third sign, Jesus is deliberately focusing our eyes away from signs and calls us to seek him in faith. And I want to remind you of that great verse in Hebrews 11, verse 1, which defines what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's the King James Version, which I believe is the better expression of that. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You have faith even though you can't see it, even though you can't touch it, but you have faith because you understand the evidence of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen is delivered to you by the Holy Spirit in your heart. You know who Jesus is. You know who God is. You know that he died on the cross, and now you worship him because you know he loves you, and whatever you need will come to you. But first, first, you worship him. First, You love him. You don't come to him for a sign. You come to him because you worship him. And so Jesus here calls us to see the real son of God, the real Messiah. He calls us to give up worshiping idols, false gods, and imaginary Christs, and rather to turn to the real Jesus Christ who died on the cross because he loves you. But if Jesus asks us not to seek a sign, why did he heal the nobleman's sign? son? The answer is, in performing that sign, Jesus revealed who he was to this man and to the nation. By healing the man's son uh, with his mere word, 
Jesus made it absolutely clear, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. No one could conclude that Jesus was a magician uh, or that he had some new medication or that he was a gifted physician. None of that, because nobody could do that from 25 miles away. Only God himself could do it with a mere spoken word. And so what you see here is that only God could bring into existence something from the spoken word. Only God alone, and that's the essence of this third sign. He saved the young man's life, even though he was on the brink of death, and only God himself can save us from death. And Jesus was making it clear, I came to save you from death, from spiritual death. And so Jesus, by performing this sign, declared to all people that he had come to bring life to those who are near death. And frankly, that's us. We're all dead men and women walking without Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. Jesus granted life to this boy so that everyone who saw it would witness the real Jesus, the real Christ, the real Messiah. And so there are important lessons for us today in this message. Uh, First, if Jesus acted uh, the way that he did with this man, and if his actions actually had the effect on him that the Bible tells us that they did, then surely Jesus is the answer to your own anxieties. You understand? God knows you have anxieties. You have concerns. You have worries, all right? Whether it's over money or over health or over relationship, God knows your anxiety. And Jesus is the answer to your anxiety. You may be crying on the inside, and I'm aware of it. I am so burdened by the needs of this church. It burdens me greatly. I know the hurts. I know the health issues. Uh, and I, my wife and I, I say to her, my wife, our, our house has often become the repository of bad news. But here's the thing. God called us to pray, to be there, to receive that news, and then to lay it at the, at the throne of God. And so here you see it with this man. When Jesus said, go home, your son is healed. Immediately the anxieties were moved away because he believed in who Jesus was at that moment. The anxieties evaporated. It's the same for you today, just as if you were there standing there when Jesus said that. And so here's the thing. You may be weighed down today with great burdens. You're concerned about health issues. The doctor has said things to you that hurt you badly. You don't know what the future delivers to you. And you may be crying on the inside even though you're not crying on the outside. You don't want to let us know about it. But he sees it. He knows your heart. And what I would say is tell Jesus about it. Speak to him. Pray to him. You've accepted him as your Lord and Savior. He will be delighted to ease your burdens and to take the weight upon himself. That's who your Jesus is. The second application is is that the experience I have described here may be true even though we don't see the results in this world. What does that mean? It means that within the will of God, Sometimes God does not want to heal you in this world, and that the result of that will be seen in the next world. We don't understand what God's will is for us. 
We don't. But we understand that this is only a speck of time. All right? Whether we live to be 100 or 90 or 80, and I've pretty much described everybody in this church. Whatever it is, you understand? Whatever it is, whatever time he gives to you, then within his perfect will, he determines whether he heals you here or he heals you for the other side. Because the other side is eternity. You understand? What is a hundred years? It's a drop of, uh, in the bucket of time. And yet he's healed you. He's healed you and will heal you, whether it's here or on this other side. Tell him about it. Speak to him. Let him take all these issues that you have, even as he may postpone the answering of this to the next life. Look, we experience sorrow in this world. We experience sickness. Uh, and so we come to Jesus. We come to him because we believed in him, because we have faith in him. Not because we expect a miracle, but because we love him. And he unburdens us. He takes our anxieties away. And when we come to Jesus, effectively, here's what he says to you. I know what I am doing. I am working it out. Church, that's the message for you today. And Jesus is saying to you, I know what I'm doing. I'm working it out. I haven't abandoned you. I'm holding you in the palm of my hand. Do you think I would have died on the cross for you if, in fact, I didn't have a resolution in mind? I see your burdens. I see your needs. I know what it takes to address them. Uh, and so, really, we understand this is the nature of our God. This is the nature of our Christ. Uh, look, really, as I close this message in Matthew 11, verse 28, that great passage there where Jesus speaks to us all when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Come to me. Come to me. Yes, you believed in me. Yes, you had faith in me. Yes, you understand I'm the God of the universe. Yes, you understand that I have created everything. You understand that I died on the cross. I had your name in my hand. Come to me with all your burdens, and I, I will give you rest. That's the nature of what our Lord says. Church, that's what needs to resonate today in your heart. Accept Christ as who he is, not for what he can give you, not for what he can do for you, but for the fact that he is the Son of God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for this message. I thank you for these great signs that you have given us to indicate who Jesus is. He is the Messiah. He is God. He is your Son. Uh, and so, Lord, as we recognize all of these powers, we bow before the throne and we worship you, Lord, and take away the nature of idolatry from our hearts. We're weak, Lord. We're weak, but we want to love you and embrace you, and we want to come to you with our burdens because we know that as we accept you, as God himself, as we accept you as our Lord and Savior, all these other things will be advanced for us. Bless our people as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you.